Hello and welcome. This podcast is a production of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, parents, and friends. My name is Susan Lynch and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Brian Williams, an Associate Professor at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. His research focuses on issues related to demographic diversity, local law enforcement, and public governance, with special attention devoted to the co-production of public safety and public order. In this podcast, Professor Williams will highlight the obstacles and opportunities of bringing the theory of community policing or relational policing into professional and communal practice. So thank you, Professor Williams. Thank you so very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can you start by explaining the current state of relational policing in our country today? Uh, it's in a very precarious state. We can kind of look back over what's taken place uh, throughout 2020 and even beyond 2020, before 2020. But now we see that uh, we look at some polling data, uh, public opinion data, that the views of uh, negative views of, of police increased across all kind of demographic kind of uh, domains and lines. Uh, racial, ethnic, but also age. Uh, so we've, we've seen an increasing in the unfavorability of, of views of police officers, particularly within the black and brown community. Yes, I, I see that. Can you Do you see a spillover effect on where we are today on other governmental institutions? There is a spillover effect that we do see uh, in terms of public trust and confidence in these institutions, primarily the criminal justice system uh, itself. Uh, where we have a growing number of people who um, are quite um, afraid of what's taking place within the system. When we think about in the context of policing in particular, we can kind of look at two kind of signature dates. Uh, we think about the summer with George Floyd, but we can also go back to 2014 and we think about Trayvon Martin. What we see is that uh, more people today see that the problem uh, is much more than just an isolated incident when we think about those two kind of police citizen kind of interactions. Where today, uh, well, as of June of 2020, 74% of the American public felt as if uh, what took place with George Floyd was a sign of a much broader problem. That is in relation to 43% in 2014 post kind of Trayvon Martin. So we have this kind of spillover effect that's really impacted the criminal justice system, but really the, the policing aspect of that criminal justice system. And as I said previously, it's impacting all Americans for the most part, but it's much more pronounced in those uh, black, indigenous, and other people of color uh, within the uh, American body politic. Yeah, so what factors do you see that have led to where we are today? I think uh, I always kind of utilize this kind of uh, understanding that the past has an impact on the presence. So we see the past really impacting where we are right now. When we think about um, not just the recent past, but the distant past, when we think about the origins of policing has really kind of, I think, shaped our, our opinion uh, of policing. Um, we go back to the origins. Uh, we understand that that Policing has been around for quite a period of time within the U.S., especially the, the kind of formal aspects. We can kind of go back to the 1830s. Uh, even though Richmond uh, 
notes itself is starting its police department in 1807. Most people kind of give that to, I think, Boston in 1833 or 1835. But we look at policing today, we have to appreciate that what we consider to be municipal, you know, city or county policing, there might be anywhere between 12 to 14,000 police departments. But each of those agencies have a unique culture and a unique history. But there's some shared uh, common ground across police departments when we really think about it. And the sharing of it is um, they have enforced laws and social norms. And those laws and social norms reflect social constructions, right? Social narratives that have traditionally impacted marginalized and stigmatized populations. And so we can kind of think about the, the social construction associated with people of color within the South, African-Americans in particular. So we think about the enslavement of African-Americans and the narratives that led to and sustained that, that, that enslavement created these laws that we had police departments to enforce, right? We can kind of see that also when we look at other regions of our country. So we think about the Northeast and we think about when we saw an increased rise in urbanization, immigration, industrialization that brought the other from other European countries. And we saw how police were used as strike busters uh, to kind of really address, uh, you know, the problems, if you will, uh, that impacted the owners of those industries. Uh, but we also kind of see how that had a negative impact on Irish Americans, German Americans, you know. And then we can kind of look at the Southwest too when we think about the Texas Rangers and how they enforced certain actions against uh, Aboriginal people and the indigenous people. So there's a, a history of policing, uh, even though there's some uh, regional differences that those enforcement actions have been somewhat uh, negative. They may have been lawful at the time, they may have been legal, but they were awful when we think about people of color. And that, that past has a presence in the present. When we think about, um, maybe let's think about stop and frisk as a good example, where you're asked to show your ID, right? For no legitimate reason, that's how a lot of members of the public see it, that goes back to the days of maybe the black codes, right? Or, or maybe prior to that, when we think about the enslavement of African-Americans where you had to show your paper, uh, your papers. Uh, we think about uh, lynchings, right? Of the past, but we look at that video of George Floyd this summer, right? It's kind of interesting kind of, to kind of think about what might be some parallels between those two points in time, at least in the eyes of those folks who have an intimate kind of um, appreciation for the past in these kind of contexts? Are there real differences when we look at the old slave patrol badge versus the much more modern police badge today? In many members of uh, segments of our community, uh, there are members who don't see a distinction between the two, even though progress has been made. Yes, I see. It's such a complex and deep history. And so where do we go from here to try and build back this trust um, between our communities and policing? And sort of where, what are the obstacles to this change and reform? And, and, and perhaps what are the opportunities? So where do we go from here? Uh, I think that there are a couple of things we have to do, first of all, before we kind of chart our course we might have to really kind of um, admit 
that there is a problem. And I'm not sure if the, the vast majority of the American public can really fully appreciate the problem. So it's a process, a reconciliation process, if you will, that will go from awareness of these issues, understanding of these issues, acknowledging that these issues are real, that will then lead into what I describe as corrective action as collective action. So it's just not enough for one aspect of demographic, uh, demographic of the American public to kind of become aware, understand, acknowledge, and engage in this That's all demographic. Collectively, we have to kind of do that. And that will be a process because we all have different lived experiences. Our truths happen to be our truths, but we have to begin the process of appreciating the truths of others. So with this reconciliation process, we can then kind of what I describe as kind of reassemble, right? When we think about policymaking, uh, oftentimes it's the powerful or those with access to power who make and shape policy. The impacts is all. So I think we might have to reassemble this whole kind of process to make it much more equitable. Uh, Professor Frank Dukes at UVA is one that I, I kind of really kind of lean into to kind of guide with this process, where he kind of highlights the need for equitable collaboration. That's inclusive, that's intentional, that's deliberate. But I think that's really, really important aspect of it. It's trauma-informed. Right. So it kind of speaks to uh, allows those who have been impacted to kind of speak their truth to kind of help shape it. So once we reassemble with this kind of intentional group of folks with different lived experiences, we can begin reimagining. Right. We can reimagine community. We can reimagine public safety. We can reimagine policing that will allow us to redesign. Right. So we set out these blueprints then we can begin the process of deconstructing and reconstructing a much more just, fair, and equitable kind of system, uh, community, policing, structures. Uh, so it, it's a really kind of uh, process that uh, Professor Dukes kind of describes as this collaborative community change process. It's much more grounded. It's not a top-down, it's a grounded, but it's well-informed. Uh, and I think that will really kind of allow us to kind of understand the past, its impact on the present, but we can then plan for uh, and design a much brighter future when we think about relational policing. Great. So, and finally, um, really, what are the implications for higher edu education institutions? So how can a place like UVA and you and your colleague, Professor Dukes, what kind of place and a role can UVA take in tackling these kind of big societal issues? I, I, we, we, we think about higher education uh, institutions. For the most part, it's all about teaching, you know, to teach, to serve, and in, to inquire into the nature of things. I think we can attack this on all three fronts, right? So at the core of all of this is, I think, meaningful engagement with community, broadly defined, that will inform our teaching our service, but also our research, right? How do we begin preparing our students for the new challenges of today, these super wicked problems, right? How do we get in front of them, people with different lived experiences? I've been extremely fortunate during this pandemic to have folks to kind of talk about these issues uh, from perspectives uh, that I don't think my students have ever uh, probably heard from. So I've had returning citizens, these are individuals who spent over 20 years in prison, but they have keen insights on police community relations. 
and they've shared their story, they've shared their perspective. But then you can also bring in someone who might be with the Department of Criminal Justice Services, who has this bureaucratic institutional kind of understanding and appreciation for the issues. Then you can bring in advocates like from, from the Civilian Review Board, who you can kind of speak to. You can bring in attorneys, uh, but we have an opportunity to kind of really kind of tap into those networks, those different lived experiences to inform our students, but also opportunities to kind of serve, right? So service learning, partnering with these institutions, nonprofits, others that will inform us of the real lived experiences of not only those within the profession of policing, but also within those communities that those professional police officers serve. And finally, when we kind of think about the research, we have to kind of measure what truly matters. And that's a process. So identifying, you know, let's look at demographics. When we go back to the origins of policing, white male dominated, but things have changed. Right now, 13% of police officers happen to be women. 13% happen to be African-American. This is across the board, generally speaking. But does representation make a difference, right? I've published some work on representative bureaucracy that speaks to uh, the more uh, uh, the police department reflects the demographic makeup of its community, the better the policy outcomes, right? So that's the theory behind it. But right now the research is mixed. And what we're appreciating that maybe culture plays a role, socialization plays a role, leadership or management might play a role. And we have to continue to research these things. It's like peeling layers of an onion to kind of understand what might be taking place. Oftentimes, if you can envision, you know, uh, an apple, a barrel full of apples and a tree. And we ask the question around relational policing, is it the apple, the individual officer, is the barrel or the cultural organization of a police department was the tree, the criminal justice system, right? But I think it's much deeper than that. I think it's the soul, right? And that soul, what's embedded in that soul, uh, it will be contaminated. So if the soul is contaminated, everything that comes out of that soul is contaminated. It's sad, but we have contaminated soil within the American system. Uh, we started out as a country professing to be uh, where all people were created equal, all men were created equal. But of course that was not the case. So we've had that contamination since that articulation. So now research allows us to kind of understand what, how do we deal with this contamination? What's most effective? How do we continue to kind of tweak those things? So research is really, really important when we kind of think about uh, kind of improving some things, but not just research, as I said, also teaching, service, but it's all rooted on engagement. Yes, I see. It's really, it, you, I see that as sort of a, being a convener. And uh, it sounds like for bringing different groups together and then also a way to teach the next leaders of, of, our, of our institutions. And I think it's really, really important. We have to be um, futurists too, right? Right. We train tomorrow's leaders today. And not just those within higher ed. I've done some work working with middle school and high school students too, to prepare them to receive the baton that we will hand off to them as they continue to advance, uh, you know, along this American kind of marathon race, if you will. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Professor Williams. I'm sure we could go on about this topic for, for much longer. These uh, podcasts are meant to be sort of short form for us to understand the issue and then for all of us to learn more as we go forward. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with all of us. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn. We look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.